Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Jamie Woodhouse. He's a father, a husband, an ex-management consultant, uh, but he'll be talking to me today about his passion and vocation in and around sentientism. Sentientism is a simple philosophy. It's all about evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. Jamie established and operates the Sentientism podcast and YouTube channel. He campaigns in pursuit of a sentientist manifesto, and he's an active Twitterer, tweeting thoughts and ideas and sometimes even challenges about how we might look after all sentient beings. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamie Woodhouse. Well, Jamie Woodhouse, um, thanks so much for giving up your time to, to come and, and have a chat with me on what I like to affectionately call compassion in a t-shirt. Hence the t-shirt you see um, yeah you actually do have compassion on the t-shirt now it's great to be here Steph. thank you thank thank you i've been listening to your podcast um for a little while now uh and so very excited to meet you first of all um but you know you have a very intelligent and warm interviewing style um in fact uh, you you have quite an intelligent and warm disagreeing style which i thought i find uh, very refreshing and and um very nice to to listen to that sort of stuff these days you know when people can have you know good robust conversations that where, where sometimes there might be bits that people agree on or disagree on but um uh, but anyway I, I hope i can do this conversation a, a bit of justice as well so thank you again yeah. well I, thank you that's 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 kind words too. And the only thing I would say is that if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see a different level of snarkiness that will probably undermine your confidence in my amiable uh, conversational style. So I, I well, don't always hold, hold myself to those standards, unfortunately, but I try. Mm. Well, I, I did pre-record the the introduction and, and I, I did allude to that actually in the introduction um, that you have a, a, a sort of, a, you're a, a I didn't say prolific, but anyway, you 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 you're a, you're a big tweeter and and you like to put challenges out there, things for us to to think about. Which I I think you know that's the the idea. I mean, one of our sort of thoughts from the the perspective of compassion that I take is is really that that compassion takes strength and courage as much as anything else. You know, to to do the the tough stuff. You know, and and so uh, quite often compassion isn't just lovely and fluffy and warm or something it can sometimes mean you know fighting for uh for justice or you know that sort of thing so i i find it um wonderful always around but uh yeah i guess what i was curious first of all just to uh maybe hear a bit about just yourself your your work your life maybe um perhaps what what you're sort of working on or what inspires you a bit of a who's jamie woodhouse first of all yeah, cool. Yes, yeah, so as you said, my name is Jamie Woodhouse. I live in deep north London with my family, uh, two teenage kids, wife and uh, a crazy canine called Luna, who may make an appearance in the background if we're lucky. Yeah. Um, and I guess my um, my sort of professional background and day job, if you like, is as a consultant, mm. uh, helping companies, helping people. But the most interesting thing I'm focused on is this idea of sentientism, which is going to be the core of what we talk about today it's a worldview or a philosophy and um, I'm just doing what I can to develop it and ideally popularize it mm. and actually I think that would be a great place to just start is is to hear a little bit about you know perhaps what sentientism really is I'm not sure that that everyone has a sort of a, a thorough sense of that in a way so yeah I'm I'm, I'm keen to, to hear what, what's what is sentientism and perhaps how did you get into all of that yeah. So in a sentence, I'd describe it as evidence, reason, and having compassion for all sentient beings. Mm. Um, but you might want to take a step back and say, well, okay, what even is this thing? And I describe sentientism as a worldview or a philosophy. Um, 
And I think worldviews are important because whether or not we make them explicit, all of us have them. You know, they're really ways of thinking about the world. And to my mind, the most important questions that our worldviews are trying to answer are, you know, what's real? What is reality? How should we believe things? What's right and wrong? Um, but also what and who matters? You know, what should we care about? What should our ethics and morality be? Um, so I think worldviews are really important because whether we talk about them explicitly or not, we have them. And those are two of the deepest questions we're trying to answer. But I think it's good to be explicit about our worldviews and to challenge them and to make sure they're well-founded. So I guess that's where sentientism fits in. It's trying to answer those two questions, what's real and who matters, with the sentence I just laid out. So it suggests that when we think about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach that uses evidence and reason, you know, engage with reality to try and understand it honestly and being aware of our own biases and... Um, you know, the problems in our own reasoning and our perception, of course, but use evidence and reason to decide what to believe. And when we're thinking about what and who matters, the clue is in the name that we should grant compassion or have moral consideration for all sentient beings. So any being has the capacity to suffer, to flourish, to have experiences. So that's it, really, a super simple answer to the questions of what's real and who matters. Yeah. And there's, the, I mean, there's two, two key pieces, really, isn't there? There's the, the evidence and reason piece. And then there's the ethics, um, compassion piece. And I must admit, yeah, as I as I listen to your podcast, I mean, I'm I'm first drawn to evidence and and reason. I, I come from a long line of um, sort of actually educators and medical practitioners is sort of my um, ancestors. Um, yeah. So I guess science and the natural world and what can we observe and you know how how can we even measure it sometimes you know those those are sort of, that, that, I guess that's actually a worldview for me in a way, I suppose. You, you might have a word for that perhaps, but um, but tell, tell us more about that side of it, I guess. Like from a sentient point of view, evidence and reason, what, what, what's, what are we really looking for there? Well, there's, there's a few different choices that you can take about when you're thinking about this part of your worldview. Um, you know, how should we believe and what should we believe? So, if I set some of those choices out, there's one is what you might call fideism or faith, where someone will believe something um, in itself without asking for or without wanting evidence and reason to support it. So that's quite a pure sort of faith-based way of believing things about the world. So um, some religious people think that way, not all. Um, uh, so that's one choice you might take is so I don't need evidence and reason, I have faith. Another alternative is which can be related is dogmatism, where you just believe something, again, somewhat arbitrarily or because someone else told you it, but without looking for evidence or reason to back it up. And also you tend to sort of ignore or turn away from evidence or reasoning that might undermine this belief. So dogmatism is, a, is another choice. Um, there's another choice which I'm suggesting, which is one of naturalism, where we try to start out from a reasonably neutral standpoint of, and a humble standpoint of thinking about what to believe. And we say, well, the best way of, you know, giving ourselves a good chance of being right about things is to just engage honestly with reality as we find it. Um, and in a way, that's what evidence is. Evidence is information about reality. Um, and I think of evidence in a very broad sense. So yes, absolutely, it can include scientific evidence, you know, randomized control trials or, um, uh, you know, explicitly designed experiments with very clear analytical results. But I think of evidence in a much broader sense than that as well. I think evidence includes our own personal experiences, the things I'm perceiving, you know, I'm pretty confident this coffee mug exists, but I haven't done science to work that out, really, it's a direct perception so i think there's lots of different types of evidence i think of evidence very broadly but we should be skeptical of all of them and we should be open to new evidence as we work things through um so evidence isn't about perfectly understanding reality of course there's no such thing as perfect evidence but it's honestly trying to gather information about reality yeah. and then the reasoning side also isn't perfect you know there's no real such thing as perfect reasoning we always have biases and flaws in our reasoning you know essentially we're sort of evolved apes that 
um, developed cognitive capabilities designed for surviving on the savannah. So, you know, we should be humble about our own abilities to reason, but at the same time, reasoning, you know, thinking critically, logically, and clearly seems to me the only sensible way of trying to understand the world around us. So again, let's not kid ourselves, it's perfect, let's be humble about it. But it seems to me that those two tools, evidence and reasoning, are the only viable way of understanding the world. But let's not kid ourselves that they're going to give us perfect answers or that we should ever be totally confident in what we come up with. So those are three choices, I guess, if you like, fideism, dogmatism, or a sort of naturalistic way of understanding the world. Mm. But there's also a, a risk here too, because um, quite often people will use scientific language describing their thinking as being based on evidence and reasoning to justify a belief that they came up with in advance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so many people who have a fideistic, a faith-based belief or a dogmatic belief will still talk a great deal about evidence and reason. But as you engage with them, you'll come to realize that the only evidence they're interested in is the evidence that supports the belief they already want to hold. And the only reasoning they're willing to follow is the reasoning that supports the belief they want to hold. And they will warp or reject or ignore the evidence and reasoning that challenges them. So that, in a way, that's a sort of fake naturalism, which is pretending to be a naturalistic person using a scientific method, but actually you've already decided what you want to believe. So that's a sort of broad portfolio of choices. And that's why I'm suggesting this naturalism is probably our best bet at understanding reality well. And we, we should want to understand reality well if we want to make a better world. Mm. Yes, it's all, it almost becomes a um, debating tactic at that point, doesn't it? For, for people who might have a dogmatic view, might then use sort of this kind of evidence, reason sort of version of things to just as a tactic to try to make an argument or make a point or sort of, you know, um, but the true uh, sort of evidence-based, empirical-based uh, kind of approach really comes, first of all, from that place of humility where we know that we don't necessarily know and we may never know perfectly, but it's a, always a work in progress, you know, trying to gradually know more and more or closer and closer to perhaps the reality. Um, and that's the, I think that's the absolute heart of a naturalistic worldview, but also a scientific worldview is that humility, that doubt, always be open to new evidence, never being so sure you're totally locked down. So your beliefs maybe are provisional, which means they're open to new evidence all the time. And there may be probabilistic so that you're never 100% sure something is true or not true because you're open to new evidence. Yeah. Um, and I think that humility and that doubt is at the heart of the scientific method and at the heart of naturalism. But it often, again, because we're flawed humans, mm. even people with a very scientific world, you can come across as being very dogmatic. So there's, there is this impression of mm. some people in the scientific world that they're dismissive of alternative points of view. You know, they've done the randomized control trial. They have the spreadsheet with the regression analysis. And here is the answer. And it's like, well, OK, that, that's good evidence. It's maybe very good quality evidence. And maybe I have a high credence in the things you've come up with. But it's still not 100%. And we still need to be open to new ideas new evidence so but okay, i mean that that sort of stuff is or has been sort of writ large hasn't it these last couple of years people really retreating into their more dogmatic positions and and then and that's this division i think that it's kind of alluding to at the beginning just makes it hard to have conversations when people are kind of more stuck in in their their dogmas i mean the, the, the there's as much joy in a way as you know discovering some sort of evidence against what we might think as, as there is discovering evidence for what we might think. And, and uh, it's sort of, that to me is the, um, the, the sort of the joy and excitement and, and so on of, of taking a scientific approach is you just, you're just not really ever sure actually. Yeah. What might and be. And I think you find that. And I think you find that when you talk to the, you know, the best scientists and you can see it in whether it's, whatever field it is, biology or chemistry or something else, or, or physics is a great example, where the physicists working on things like the Large Hadron Collider are most excited about the possibility of finding out they're wrong and that there's something else they don't know and yeah. there's, there's some new vista that might open up. You know, there's wonder and awe and excitement in that uncertainty, mm. but at the same time, you know, just keep working to try and understand things better. So, yeah, mm. I, find that, I find that quite powerful.
it's it's the great conversation isn't it that's that's been kind of happening you know for for millennia you know always just this great conversation as we gradually discover more but bringing it back to the topic of the of sentientism um you mentioned suffering and flourishing uh and one of the little questions that has bubbled up in my mind as I've listened to some of your work and your podcasts and so on is this bit about evidence and reason and knowing or, or you know the reality of suffering in non-human sentient beings um and I, I was curious you know there's there's sort of there's the, I guess reason makes sense we can we know that we experience that we can sort of observe an animal and it makes sense that they might be suffering um but yeah can you talk a bit about evidence and reason and how that might approach kind of understanding the inner world really of other sentient beings and and their experience of suffering yeah and, and there's um there's so many areas where these two tenets link so many people like to keep them very separate there's if you like epistemology on one side of how do we understand the world and evidence and reason on the other choices and on the other side there's ethics so some people like to draw a really clear dividing line between the two but I can't help seeing links across them and this is one of them and I think that's one of the areas where there's quite a nice complementarity between thinking about sentience as the grounding characteristic of compassion and moral consideration and having this sort of naturalistic worldview because I think sentience is a phenomenon of the natural world so instead of saying you know we care about others because they have a soul or because you know there's a deity that told us to or there's some other higher purpose or higher power the reason we care about them is because they have sentience and that sentience means they have the capacity to have experiences and just as I value my own experiences you know I don't like suffering and I do like flourishing mm. in a sense morality is a choice to care about and value the way others value their own experiences you know so I care about your suffering because you don't like it so that's part of the link this mm. thinking about sentience I think is a characteristic of the natural world so I think that's why they're quite complementary quite complementary mm. um and and I agree this is um, a tricky subject to work around when you're thinking particularly about consciousness and sentience because in its purest sense you know how can we be a hundred percent sure that non-human animals experience things and you can also say well how are we 100 percent sure that each other are experiencing mm. things you know you could be a sort of empty automaton or you know just a clever simulation on a zoom screen you know maybe you're not experiencing things at all so there's that extreme solipsistic stance where people say look i'm confident i exist and i'm experiencing but maybe others don't mm. and i think when we talk about um, other humans most people will say well that's patently ridiculous because you know and why is it ridiculous why do we have confidence that each other as humans suffer and i'd suggest there's probably you know a few different lines of inference we might use to build our confidence that you know you stand can suffer so one is about evolutionary history and evolutionary context you know you and i are both very similar if you look at the, the tree of life and the evolutionary history of all of our millions of years of um uh, um ancestors you know what we went through so i'm highly confident that i experience things because i am moment to moment i know you've gone through an extremely similar evolutionary process mm. that in a naturalistic worldview is really what's built us so it would seem odd that i've gone through this process you've gone through the very same process i experience things and you don't so there's an evolutionary adaptability story there around you know i um our confidence that we can experience things mm. there's also behavior so you know I'm, I'm watching you i'm listening to you i can see how you react if we were in the same room together and i pinched your arm i see you respond to that so that those behavioral actions and the things i'm seeing again they don't tell me exactly that you are suffering or flourishing but they give me a pretty strong indication because i react in those same ways and i feel things that when you react in those ways you're probably feeling those things too. So there's a behavioral um, and a communication pattern that I can observe in you that gives me some confidence too. The final thing we can do is put you in an MRI scanner or something similar and at least a, a sort of clunky 
highly pixelated level, observe the information processing that's going on in your mind. Um, and there are lots of different philosophies of mind about what sentience and consciousness are. I think sentience really just is a pattern of information processing. But even the people who disagree with me and think it's something else recognize that it's tightly correlated with the information processing that's going on in our brain. So in the same ways, you know, I know I'm feeling things when I'm in an fMRI scanner and I can see the patterns of blood flow or electrical activity. If I do the same experiment with you, again, it gives me more confidence that you probably suffer and flourish and experience things the same way I do. So those three lines of evidence and inference apply to non-human animals in exactly the same way. So again, you can look at the evolutionary context of why humans may have developed the capacity to feel pain. And it's pretty obvious that non-human animals developed exactly the same thing. And they probably developed it many millions of years before humans even came on the scene. Um, so my amateurish sense of it, maybe in the Precambrian, is that it, it was evolutionarily adaptable, had value to be able to sense good things, sense bad things, feel the um, impact of those and move towards the good and away from the bad. Um, so I think in a way that was the evolutionary um, genesis, if you like, to use a religious term, <laughs> of where sentience came from. So there's that evolutionary story that I think helps us understand that, you know, sentience predates humans by many hundreds of millions of years, most likely, and therefore is also very broadly spread through the current uh, animal kingdom mm. secondly again it's the behavior and the and the activity and the communication so we can observe non-human animals anyone who has a companion animal in the house will already have this visceral sense that of course they experience things they feel love and pleasure and pain and fear um, and again we can you know extend that observation out across the animal kingdom and build that strong line of evidence too um, but we also recognize that non-human animals have very analogous information processing um, in terms of either the explicit structure of the brain or at least functionally in terms of the types of information processing that's going on. So it's no susception, you know, the senses of pain, the, the processes of um, awareness of that pain that go on in the mind. So we can actually look at the information processing that's going on in non-human animals. So in the same way as I've developed, you know, pretty high confidence, you know, I put it in the 99.99 percentage range that, that you are sentient, I think we can take that exact same approach to develop a very high credence in the sentience of very many non-human animals. So there's a long answer, but hopefully that gives you a sense of no, no, I, what I think the story is for believing that non-human animals can suffer. No, that's that's really that's really helpful. The the, the, the I'm going to add. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut across you. I'm going to add the fourth method, which okay. is just look into the eyes of a puppy. And so you can drop all the science. You can just spend some quality time with non-human animals and yes. you'll know it. So there's an intuitive route to the same answer too. And it's, it's, it's interesting though, because the, you know, one of the differences, uh, and it's an unfortunate one, I suspect, that we are sort of up against with lots of people is that you know, animals can't simply just tell us that they're suffering, that they're not able to make a statement or, you know, advocate for themselves or express, you know, in nice, clear forms, just how difficult it is, you know. And, and so that's, I think, where a lot of people perhaps, you know, kind of fall down in terms of, you know, really being able to connect with the suffering of non-human animals. I think there's, there's some truth in that, um, you know, non-human animals, can't use human language except in yes. very rudimentary forms you know look at some of the corvids or the uh, chimpanzees and so on so yeah. that's true but they do communicate with us and they communicate with us very clearly so you know the other yeah. day i accidentally trod on our puppy's paw while oh. she was running around my Maybe. feet it wasn't she's she's not she's she's not injured she's absolutely fine but her reaction to that told me in no uncertain terms that she felt that pain and, and I think, again, that's true across much of the animal kingdom, not all of it, but much of the animal kingdom is yes. the communication is actually pretty clear and direct, if only we would listen. Yes. Now, when you get to some branch of the animal kingdom, you know, you consider fish for, as a good example, maybe that communication gap is so far, you know, so, so distant that it becomes harder. But even there, there are responses and reactions and other things going on that if we'll open our mind to what those non-human animals are trying to tell us the message is 
pretty clear and it's pretty simple and what you might expect you know they are messages like please don't hurt me and please don't take my family away or mm. you know i'm yes. hungry or you know, at least those very basic communications or you know i like you <laughs> you know these basic communications are actually there if we'll, if we'll only look for them Yes, they, they have a number of those same, well, certainly the, the kind of what, what we might think of as the threat system, you know, that even just that fight, flight, responding type stuff is is very clear, uh, even in fish, you know, like they run away and, you know, it, it's run away, I suppose. And, um, and, the, and the positive stuff too, right? And to, yeah, to your right. theme of compassion, you can, you can see non-human animals, fish, dogs, pigs, cows, chickens, you know, carry on with the list as long as you like i have a very high degree of confidence that you know mothers feel compassion for their young and you can see that in their behavior yes um, i'll so come the, back the positive to that. aspects of those expressions are there too yeah i'm i'm, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that actually in a, in a in a moment but just, just to sort of so there's yes there's definitely that sense of you know the various you know animals including humans have evolved together and there's sort of evidence in there there's certain um behaviors or communications or you know things that we can observe that kind of indicate um perhaps suffering um is there any actual mri studies of i'm, I'm suspecting there would be of chimpanzees for example maybe or, or i mean is there any of the neuroscience there that has compared human suffering and what the brain does with non-human animals there is unfortunately and and this is one of the really frustrating things because the study of animal sentience is in a sense in a sense deeply important because it helps us to understand that they can suffer but sadly a great deal of that experimentation has been involves causing those animals to suffer so we can study them suffering so we yes. conduct experiments on them in ways that you'd never consider doing to a human out of intellectual curiosity even this even though the object of the study is the very suffering itself so yes. it's a difficult space um but in short a broad range of formal scientific experiments have been done that mm. demonstrate very strongly the capacity for non-human animals to suffer yes. um, and some of those are um uh, brain scans and neurological some of them are behavioral um yep. others are uh, doing tests using things like analgesics um because if you can uh, change the behavior of a non-human animal using the presence of pain and then analgesics and you can see the change again there's an implication there that the pain is being experienced because the analgesic dulls the effect of it mm. so yeah there are many different experiments yeah. um, many of them deeply unpleasant and most of them coercive but again yes. it's part of the evidence and i'd hope the evidence base is strong enough that would justify us not doing any more of these experiments frankly yes, but yeah yes. the scientific evidence is extremely strong yeah. um and you can see that being reflected through you know the, the cambridge declaration on um animal consciousness which came out a while ago yeah. um by the time this episode goes out there will be a new declaration a montreal declaration that okay. takes that to the next step and explains what the implications of animal sentience and consciousness are for the way we exploit them. Mm. So there's a very strong scientific consensus about the prevalence of non-human uh, animal suffering. Although still some really interesting debates around the, um, you know, some of the fuzzy edges. So when you're looking at things like bivalves or some of the simpler invertebrates, yes. some of the simplest insects, um, right. open interesting questions about whether sentience fades away to nothing or whether there's a cutoff point or which species, which of those species sentience might be present in. Yes, yeah. No, thank you for, for all of that. And I, I might actually uh, get onto you after we've spoken and, and see if you can give me a couple of those links, not least the, the Montreal uh, thing that's coming up. So that would be yeah. good to, to, to follow up on, on that little bit. Another little question. Absolutely. And, uh, and the general, with, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to make it too obvious a plug, but there's a, we run a sentientism reddit okay. which is a great resource for all sorts of different links um and many of them do talk about non-human animal sentience so that's a good resource but i can certainly send you some yes yes we can, stuff. Yeah. we can have a look at, at that and and i'll pop some links in the show notes that sort of thing of course and and um and that'll be great i've noticed you've used words like pain and suffering in a, in an almost interchangeable way 
And I wondered whether you see them as the same or whether you distinguish, you know, the, the, the two. Yeah, all these terms are pretty fuzzy in common uses and even in philosophy. But I tend to think of suffering as broader than pain. Mm. Um, so I, I, and I tend to try and use the terms suffering and flourishing because I think they're broader than pain and pleasure. When you talk about pain and pleasure, people tend to think of physical pains and pleasures in quite narrow types of experience. Whereas I think of suffering as any negative experience, you know, anything with a negative valence, anything we don't like. So that could be physical pain. It could be existential angst. It could be a sense of loss, fear, you know, anything, anything that feels negative to the experiencer. And in the same way, I think about flourishing as being, you know, yes, it is happiness and yes, it is pleasure, but it's also a sense of meaning, a sense of richness, a sense of awe and wonder, you know, again, flourishing can be extremely broad. So I tend to prefer those broader terms because I think any valence, any value in our sentient experience is morally significant. Mm. I, I washed the um, washed down the the back patio that today, and and I have a Labrador, Bruno, who who is a chocolate mm. Labrador, um, and um, oh, beautiful dogs, yeah, gorgeous, yes, um, yeah. And um, after I washed it all down, of course, he was wet, and so he couldn't come inside. And and um, you know, I could see a type of suffering there, a sort of a disappointment, a longing a wishing that he could, you know, and he sat at the back glass door and just peered at me and occasionally tried to tap on the door to let me know that he was unhappy. And, and, uh, I, well, I must admit, I ignored him for a little while. And, and then I, uh, then a little bit later, I took him for a walk and, and I know I, I observed the other end of the spectrum, you know, he was flourishing out there he you know there's something yeah. very very special for him about being able to sniff smells you know around the neighborhood and yeah. um it's not even the walking i don't think although he does you know he loves i think he loves that too but it's it's the sniffing that's when he's flourishing you know is is yeah. uh so i i i get it you know like I, you a whole world of it. smell out there yeah exactly and and uh so um but it's interesting because for me, suffering and flourishing uh, sometimes have a, a, a connotation around uh, the experiencer um, either sort of struggling with the pain or, you know, sort of uh, somehow enjoying the pleasure or, or feeling satisfaction out of the pleasure in a way, you know, that that's in some ways at least a lot of human suffering that I, cause I'm a clinical psychologist. I work with people, you know, all the time who are suffering from anxiety or depression and that sort of thing. And one of the ways that they suffer is by wishing they weren't, you know, kind of having the experience of pain and, and that, that in some ways there's the pain and then there's the struggle with the pain that kind of, you know, causes even all the more suffering. Um, but I think with Bruno today, you could almost see he was struggling with, he, there, there was longing there and then there was this kind of uh, joy. And, and so, I don't know. It, it, but what do you think about that, that, that idea of, of pain and then when we, when we sort of struggle with pain, that that causes, causes us greater angst or greater suffering? I think there's something to that. And to me, it comes back to, um, the way I think of morality and ethics is that it's about me caring about or valuing the way you yourself value your own experiences. So it's, it's how you as a sentient being feel that matters to me in that system. So in that context, I can imagine a situation where you're experiencing a physical pain, but you manage to um, uh, maybe in a sort of, meditative or a buddhist context come to some sort of acceptance of an awareness of that physical pain such that you are no longer suffering so i can imagine a situation where yes you are in physical pain but you're not actually experiencing a negative valence and that might be a difficult state to achieve but i can conceptually achieve that yes. I, or i can conceptually imagine that so what matters to me is how you yourself feel about that experience yes. not whether you know, your nociception thing is firing because your finger has been cut. Yes. Does yeah. that make sense? 
There's and more that experience. Would, yeah. That that would include, you know, all sentient beings and, and that, that all sentient being, beings experience in their way this this pain or and or suffering and and that that's what's important it, it's yeah. not about imposing how we might experience onto other, other humans even but certainly you know other perhaps um sentient beings but rather really just honoring i agree and that's and that's yeah and that's a and that's a difficult thing to do because you can never completely escape your own perspective of course mm. but i think that's the essence is really genuinely trying to do that and it and it's it and it's of course, there is a different challenge when we think about non-human species because it's you know there is at least another step removed, but that can leave you lead you into a few different routes. One is you can think, well, maybe they're simpler, so they don't have quite such intense experiences as us, and maybe they're not quite so important. Another route you can follow is say, well, actually, us humans have got quite a lot of capabilities, technical and emotional and intellectual, that can help us to mitigate pain and suffering. Mm. um so maybe non-human animals actually feel pain and fear and distress in an even more visceral way than we do um i can't remember who uh, suggested this thought experiment but they suggested you know imagine a, a chimpanzee going to the dentist compared to you going to the dentist you know you might both feel exactly the same physical discomfort from whatever is being done to you but you're there out of you know, because you know, ultimately, that there's a benefit for you, you know, it will be over, you know, you can trust the person doing it to you, the chimpanzee won't necessarily understand any of those things. Yes. Um, so I think, I think that there's an important cautionary point there that non-human animals may in some circumstances feel things in an even more visceral way than, than we do. Yes, yes, definitely. Part of my work would be a helping people to find some acceptance, you know, around things and or and or be make some sort of sense out of it or meaning, you know, that that, that helps to yeah. helps people to suffer less. Whereas the uh, the chimpanzee going into the MRI scanner for the scanner for the sake of research would would be terrified, you know, not knowing what on earth was going on. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, that's that's really that that's very helpful. So what about, and I know there was a lot of segue there and you, you sort of mentioned that the two aspects really do kind of complement each other, but, but what about the ethics side then of, of sentientism? Mm. Where, where would you sort of take us there in terms of that, that side? Yeah. So the, for me, there are, there are some ways of thinking about ethics that might be egoistic. You know, you should only care about yourself. Or they might be supernatural in nature. You know, we should do whatever God says, even if it's a bad thing. Um, but if I think if we put those things to one side, most people would agree that ethics and uh, morality are about how and whether we care about others and our impact on the world. Um, many of them are focused on how we should behave and the decisions we should take. But ultimately, the reason we care about that is because of how and whether we care about others. So. Sentientism takes a very simple stance and it says, well, there's loads of different ways of thinking about ethics. You might take a sort of deontological approach that thinks about rules or um, rights. You might take a utilitarian approach that thinks about well-being and utility and, and value in that sense. You might take a feminist care ethic approach that thinks about our obligations of care or a related relational approach that thinks about the nature of different relations or a virtue ethics that thinks about being you know good and kind and courageous or whatever your virtues are right so th there's so many different things you can choose from on the menu of ethical systems and you can also have a pluralistic approach that sort of picks from all of them mm. but sentientism says well that's great enjoy all that the most important thing and this is often neglected is that we get our moral scope set correctly because if you imagine someone who was a deeply brilliant virtue ethicist or someone who was a really inspirational deontological thinker or someone who took a consequentialist approach, and these people are brilliant ethicists, deep moral thinkers, but their moral scope only includes, you know, for example, humans who look like them we know where that can lead, right? So however good your ethical system is, if your moral scope excludes inappropriately, you can end up in a 
deeply awful place. So sentencism says, look, let's let's focus on getting that moral scope right, such that we don't exclude any being that is capable of experiencing suffering and flourishing, because that's the best way of making sure we don't needlessly cause suffering. Mm. So it's neutral on all of those diff different and difficult ethical problems. It just says, let's get the baseline right of setting this moral scope such that any being that could value its own experience, we would also value. So it's very clear about moral scope, but then very pluralistic on all of the rest of ethics. Mm. And I mean, from uh, in the work that I do with, um, uh, I don't know, if, have you come across Paul Gilbert and the Compassionate Mind Foundation, his, his work in compassion? I have, but not. I'm not very familiar with it. Yeah, it's. I've heard of them, but I don't. I haven't looked into it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's up in Derby, uh, and he's he's a clinical psychologist as well, but also a researcher who's really developed this theory of the compassionate mind, well beyond you know just clinical practice. But but he he would sort of say that compassion is a sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent it. Um, how would that fit, really? I mean, bearing in mind moral scope, of course, but, yeah, how, yeah. how would a, a sort of a definition like that fit with where you're coming from? I think it fits really well because I think I talk about moral scope because it's sort of more of a technical term, but I think once you've included a being in your moral scope, ethics is about having compassion for them so i think they tightly tie together as soon as you're within the moral scope you're a subject of compassion and if you're outside of the moral scope you are not and you know therefore anything can be done to you with complete impunity you know harming yeah. or killing or destroying something that is outside matters not because they're outside of the moral scope and they don't have any compassion so i think moral scope and compassion tie together quite tightly yes. and, I, and i like that definition of compassion and part of the reason i focus on compassion rather than empathy and you can correct me on the terms because i'm an amateur here is that i think empathy is more about the sensitivity part but it doesn't imply you care right so yeah. so you know you could be a you could be a, a sociopath and have you know have high degree of empathy but you just don't care about the feelings of others even though you're very sensitive to them whereas compassion has both that sensitivity but also a a, a commitment or a motivation to help so yes. i think it ties together quite well no, you, you've you've absolutely nailed it. That the um, uh, it's there's sort of two processes, or, or sometimes they call them two psychologies. There's compassionate engagement, which is that sensitivity to suffering, and and uh, empathy is definitely a, a competency that we would bring to that. The, the ability to yeah. um, you know kind of understand another person's perspective or resonate with how they might be feeling uh comes into the compassionate engagement and then yes compassionate action is the other half that and and yeah motivation in fact paul gilbert would say compassion is a motivation really it, it, it's a motivation yeah. to firstly be sensitive and engaged and secondly to do something to to help alleviate and, and prevent suffering um people may mm -hmm. I, I i usually use oh, sorry i usually use the um uh, sort of the poker player is a slightly less psychopathic example <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know like an empathic poker player uses that skill of empathy to read people's tells or whatever but they bring it to a competitive motivation you know they're trying to win you know they're using that to to win so um so yeah sorry you were going to say well and, and the second part of your definition was interesting as well because there's a there's another important so one one important question about compassion is like who and what warrants our compassion this is this moral scope question yeah. but there's another one about a level of demandingness too so if we feel compassion um whether intellectually or emotionally if we feel that compassion you know how far are we supposed to go to alleviate or help and again there's you know brilliant ethicists and moral philosophers who have different views on where it's reasonable or practical to mm. um, you know draw that line and how demanding should we be on ourselves and on our others about how much we help each other but one of the things i've tried to do with sentientism is to set a really clear baseline that says that you know if we have even some moral level of minimal level of compassion or moral consideration for another being surely we should at least not want to needlessly cause them suffering or death mm. 
that's surely that's the absolute minimum of compassion is you wouldn't needlessly harm or kill mm. um so i i'm trying to draw that fairly firm baseline and i think is unobjectionable right i think if someone was to say to you look i do have compassion for you stan um and i do include you in my moral consideration but i'm now going to needlessly hurt you you'd go i'm not sure i believe you about the compassion on the moral consideration because you've needlessly hurt me what the, what the hell is going on so i think that baseline is pretty solid mm. and hard to disagree with just based on the definitions of what moral consideration compassion yeah. mean well, yeah. but you can go so much further because you know not needlessly harming and killing is pretty simple obligation but maybe compassion should take us further into actively wanting to help or alleviating suffering we didn't yes. cause or enhancing the flourishing of others not just yes offsetting their suffering so again there's a whole world of ethics and moral complexity and practical difficulties we can work through there but again let's at least lock in that baseline that needlessly causing suffering and death mm. um you know yes. is put someone outside of the scope of our compassion yes yeah it's sort of may i be helpful rather than harmful you know towards well myself and and i suppose others um but yeah. uh, and at least not needlessly cause harm and, and not needlessly needlessly or callously uh cause yeah. cause harm yeah absolutely and and um uh, and paul does now include flourishing as well in in his sort of more general sense of compassion we're sort of alleviating um, suffering that might be kind of happening and we're trying to prevent suffering that, that could happen and we want to support, you know, uh, flourishing. But, you know, even with humans, we find it difficult, don't we? We, we? We're very good maybe at being super compassionate towards our own families or, you know, our kids or something like that, even our own pets or whatever. Um, but then, you know, take it one circle out, you know, to perhaps someone else, maybe even our neighbours or sort of, no, but, you know, even beyond, you know, someone in another community and certainly strangers, you know, we find it hard to be compassionate to strangers. And I suppose that's then bridging the next gap, which is is to, to um, other species, I suppose, is kind of like another another sort of leap for people to make with their compassion sometimes. I think it is. And, and it's interesting because most people have already made that leap selectively. I mean, you talked about Bruno as an example, yeah. you know, I, and, and if you do psychological surveys and studies, it's extremely common for people to prioritize their companion animals higher than many other humans that they yes. don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think we've already, we've already breached that. And, um, but I think there's a really strong analogy there. So on the one hand, I'd say, we're always going to prioritize, right? So we might believe in universal human rights and universal compassion, and we might believe that all human beings matter, but of course we're still going to prioritize. We might, we'll, most of us will prioritize our family and our friends. You know, we might prioritize the nation we come from, or we might prioritize in different ways. But the important thing is that in doing that prioritization, we're still not excluding any human being from moral consideration. And this comes back to the, the baseline I was trying to set before. Mm. You know, I'm not going to object to you caring more about your family than a family living in Kenya. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to struggle to object to that, but I would expect you still not to needlessly harm or kill that family you don't know. Yes. Yes. Right. So, 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 so I'm not suggesting you should um, sell all your worldly possessions, go and fly out and help them if they're facing a crisis necessarily. This is the demanding this question. Mm. right how much should you do to help those people but i am at least minimally suggesting you wouldn't needlessly harm or kill them mm. so again it's the importance of laying that baseline and saying okay we're going to prioritize within our scope of moral consideration but let's at least be clear what that boundary means mm. and that is just as important when we think about non human animals yeah. because there again we might prioritize you know i'm not necessarily going to object if someone says well i, I care about humans more than non-humans okay you can take that choice and you may or may not have good reasons for doing so but while you prioritize i would insist that you make sure that the boundary of your moral scope is set clearly to include all sentient beings 
and that you would not needlessly harm or kill any sentient being in that moral scope, even if you don't explicitly prioritize them. So prioritize away, that's fine. But let's be clear that you should not be needlessly harming or killing any being within the moral scope or within the scope of your compassion at all. Yes. Does that make sense? So I think it is analogous. It leaves space for prioritization. But we've got to be really clear on the boundary, every sentient being. And we have to be very clear on this minimum expectation of ethical demanding this. You at least wouldn't needlessly harm or kill. Yes. Surely that's the least we should do for um, any being we have even minimal com compassion for. Mm. And and yet as a species, we we do it. We we are the you know a compassionate species, and yet we're a, we are a very cruel species to 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 our members of our own species. As as again is on the world stage at the moment, sadly, and and also across species. So, I mean, what mm. what do you what what are the big sort of challenges and maybe solutions there? I mean, how how do we get the word out? Do you think? I mean, you're doing an enormous amount of work to try to get the word out, but uh, there must be some resistance. But... Whenever I have these conversations, there's often resistance there from people, you know, especially about vegetarianism and, or veganism. Yeah, there's an enormous cultural inertia and resonance and um, you know, polarization around these topics, as with many others. Um, in, in, a, in a phrase, I think the core of the issue is social norms. So people might have even found this as we've had this conversation, this experience of um, being led through a worldview that suggests that when we're thinking about what to believe, we should use evidence and reason. And people might go, well, of course, we should use evidence and reason. You know, what else could you do? That seems entirely sensible. I, I agree on that front. And they'll also be drawn through this story of saying, well, surely all suffering matters, right? Every suffering being matters, you know, we have companion animals, we have other humans, we look at animals in the wild, of course their suffering matters. So in a sense, people at a theoretical level might agree with this sentientist stance and most of the things we've said so far. Um, but then that bumps up against social norms, because while I think, you know, the average human toddler, and I don't want to, um, you know, reify young humans because human toddlers can you know have dodgy beliefs and dodgy ethics too right but but i think most human toddlers start out with this sort of worldview right so they're in a way they're like little scientists they're exploring the world they don't have many preconceptions or biases they're trying to understand what's going on they're building you know beliefs about what's going on as they look around and as they explore and as they listen so they're like a sort of little scientific mindset and i think they do also have this inbaked compassion not just for other humans but for non-human animals too of course there are ex examples of you know little boys pulling the wings off flies out of an intellectual curiosity but i think generally if you put um, a young child with a companion animal or with a pig or a cow um, they wouldn't want to needlessly hurt it so in a sense many of our aud the audience listening today might have been drawn through that story and agree in theory i think many humans start out as young people with a evidence and reason commitment and a open-minded compassion that spans across the species boundary but then we bump into social norms so around the world most humans today frankly are taught fabrications and arbitrary beliefs that are not true and more than that they're taught that it's acceptable to believe things for which there isn't an evidence base so you might find that in you know modern phenomena of QAnon and um, alternative medicine and astrology or you might find it more traditionally in a religious worldview, but it's extremely common for explicitly um, explicit lessons to be taught from society and family and teachers and others to say, here is a belief, you should believe it, and you should not challenge that belief using evidence and reason. That's extremely common. I suggest that's the default around the world. So you start from a naturalistic standpoint, and then you're taught to follow something that is dogmatic in some sense. So that's the social norms blocking the natural side, the epistemology side. Mm. Um, on the sentiocentric side, we have a similar challenge because I think, again, um, you'd start out from that stance of you know, why would I want to needlessly cause suffering to any being? But nearly everyone around the world is taught, again, by society and corporations and friends and family, uh, that it's completely acceptable in many cases, actually, 
um, a positive thing to pay for sentient beings to be needlessly harmed and killed for relatively trivial human ends. And that is an extremely strong cultural default, again, in many places around the world, that takes that sort of original sentiocentric stance of saying, well, of course, who wants to hurt animals and turns it into something that is vicious and egregious and horrific. So when you've got these types of very powerful social norms, and I don't think it's overplaying to say they are forms of indoctrination, those things are extremely hard to unwind um, because they are embedded deep in our psychology, they're embedded deep in our sense of who we are, they're embedded deep in our social relations, um, and they um, powerfully drive our motivations, you know, the, the nudges and the suggestions of things that are good to do, and the fear and the risk of going against these social norms. So I think that's the, that's the heart of the challenge we have here is, is changing those social norms back to something that is more naturalistically grounded and is more generously compassionate. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think it has a lot in common with many other social justice change movements where you know, none of those have completely completed their job today, particularly as you look around the world. But you know, certainly in some countries and some cultures, you'd look back on some of these challenges and go, how did society ever get that so wrong? And I think it's the same thing, right? Technically and logically, the answer is clear. If you follow evidence and reason and compassion, how could that thing ever be socially sanctioned? But the social norms were extremely powerful and very hard to change. And the hope I take is that once the cracks start to appear, social change can happen very quickly. Mm. And I think because most humans do have this latent sense that, yes, my belief should really be based on evidence and reason. And yes, all suffering beings warrant my compassion. I think latent, that's somewhere in nearly everybody's mind. Mm. I think we can get back to it, you know, quite quickly. Mm. Yes, it's, it's really the, the challenge of, of change, though, isn't it? And, and when people are faced with change, they, they tend to struggle with that and, and kind of resist and, and um, sometimes um, will have all sorts of, you know, wonderful arguments that they shouldn't have to change. Uh, and then, you know, then we're, then we're stuck, you know, in a, in a kind of a, a sort of an argument. And, and um, one of the things that I've noticed on some of your interviews is that um, quite often your guests will talk about kind of having more of an early epiphany around this. And, and uh, the most recent guest, Matt, I can't remember his last name, but um, uh, yes, he, he, what, what is it, sorry? Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson. And he mentioned, you know, at the age of four, really being really struck by, you know, the, yeah. sort of the horror, really, of, um, you know, sort of eating farm animals or, or e eating meat. And um, I, I think I would say that I came to it, you know, a lot later than that. Not, not the, um, the, the love and, and cherishing of, of all sentient beings and, and animals and so on, but just the behavior change of, you know, even just dietary change changes, for example. Um, and uh, a lot of people, I think, are in a little bit that boat where they didn't have the early life epitome and then the lifelong kind of, yeah. even just through their own efforts, different socialization, but rather they are really coming now at it from this, this long socialization of, of, you know, kind of perhaps, you know, not being so influenced by you know the suffering of sentient beings what what would be your your sort of top three tips or something for that kind of person you know like who's who is hearing this conversation or maybe have been thinking about these ideas along the way but just haven't quite made some of these changes yet you know what 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 would be three little practical tips for them do you think I guess my overarching thing to say is it's much easier than you think. Um, and, it, and it depends It depends where you are and, and the context you're in. So, um, uh, and that can make it much more difficult. But I think for, for most people, it's easier than you think. And I, I think that's true both in terms of moving from maybe a supernatural worldview to a naturalistic worldview, but it's also true in terms of putting the implications of this, you know, caring about other sentient beings, 
into practice. So on the supernatural and the natural side, you know, there are places around the world where that still presents serious social risk and physical risks to some people. Mm. Um, and I've interviewed some of them. Whereas for others like me, it was actually, you know, still felt slightly difficult, but socially there was no risk. Physically, there was no risk to be doing that. So that was a fairly easy journey. And I think on that naturalism stance, part of the reassurance is that even within communities that are very committed to a supernatural way of thinking, there are surprising numbers of people within that worldview who actually have a naturalistic way of thinking. So if you look at some of the surveys that are done of um, you know, predominantly Christian or predominantly Muslim countries, the percentage of secret atheists within those communities is absolutely enormous. So, so part of the social change, I think, is there's more people out there who agree with you on that front than you might have thought. Um, but you have to judge the level of risk and where you are as to, you know, how you can go on, on that journey. But on the um, sentiocentric compassion and caring about animals, and I guess the for me, a direct implication of that is veganism. Again, it's easier for some people than it is for others, but for almost everybody, it's doable. So for um, partly because the basic foodstuffs of uh, you know, a non-animal diet have been staples around the world for many, many centuries. So those are available and cheap in almost every place around the world. But also because as things are shifting and as the social zeitgeist is moving more products and alternatives and different things are coming onto the market certainly in some of the more um you know the richer countries that again make it even easier to switch there's a degree to which in places like the uk where i am now you can walk into a supermarket and um essentially go vegan without really making any sacrifices at all you know we don't necessarily have a perfect steak analog yet but on almost all of the other fronts you could basically have a, a vegan alternative to all of your favorite meals and just veganize super simply so that would be my central message is easier than you think uh, for most people and there's also support out there um, of people who will help and advise and um, you know organizations that have enormous amounts of resources that can help you shift and make that transition Mm. Um, so those would be my words words of encouragement reach out and get help it is easier than you think and just start making making the change and and people will help yes yes i remember you interviewed a woman who had really been sort of exploring her veganism in in perhaps the 60s i think it was or the 70s and she yeah. made that point just how how far it's come really that that you know you really can walk into a supermarket now uh, and find what you need. Whereas in you know in that in those days, uh, it took a lot of work or effort to to actually do it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I I I think I, I better let you go. I really appreciate uh, you you coming and having a chat. I've actually got lots of other things I sort of have in my mind that I could go on to ask you, but I'll I'll let you go. Um, and I'm sure that people will be interested in um, perhaps following you or your work and so on. How can people best find you or engage with you and, and some of the sentientism work that you're doing? Yeah, well, I'd love to continue the conversation with you uh, and your guests, whether they agree with sentientism or not. So I guess the few places I'd point people, you've mentioned the podcast already and my own YouTube channel. I've been lucky to interview some amazing people um, you know, many of them agree with sentientism, but I've also talked to people like Franz Deval and uh, Massimo Pellucci and Peter Tatchell and philosophers and activists and celebrities from uh, all sorts of different points of view. So that's a good starting point. There's also sentientism.info, which is the main website that has links to everything. Um, we run a series of online communities that, again, are open to anyone interested in these ideas. It's not some sort of sentientist club. It's anyone who's interested in these ways of thinking and you'll find them on every social media platform so just google it but the biggest is on facebook at the moment we have just shy of i think two thousand people from over 100 countries um it's a very positive social media experience so far so i'd encourage people to come and join us there and then the final thing we're doing more collectively is thinking about the implications of this worldview uh, and what it might mean not just for you know our personal choices as individuals but what it might mean for systemic and institutional change so as you go up through local and national and even uh, regional and international governance and you think about law and politics 
um, and corporations and uh, government, what would the implications be for a much more widespread sentientist view? And we're laying those implications out. So we've done some interesting thought experiments like taking the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and rewriting it as a Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights. And we've taken the sentientist development goal or the sustainable development goals and rewritten them as sentientist development goals. Um, so there's some interesting work there that people can delve into on, to the, on the website. We can say, look, let's take some of the progress we've made as a human species and literally just rethink it, bearing in mind all sentient beings and what might that do for us. And mm. I think it does two things. One is it, obviously, it's much better for all the sentient beings that are out there, but it's also good for us human beings too you know every time we extend our moral scope it tends to be uh, beneficial for those doing the extension too so um, yes well great i mean as matthew ricard says compassion is a has a twofold benefit you know it obviously benefits the person or the being the sentient being that we're compassionate towards but it's also a benefit to us as well so um but yes look indeed i mean com yeah, compassion and cooperation have proven evolutionarily adaptive. So let's, you know, I hope, I hope they continue to be, otherwise we're yes. in trouble. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, Jamie, thank you very much once again for being on Compassion in a T-shirt, I guess, or at least for coming and chatting to me. And I look forward to keeping, keeping in touch. Please do. Please do. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Good. Thanks, mate.